Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalist. Matt Pagel here once again with you, blasting through the immaterium, and thus we will lose our minds together on this episode of Sci-Fi September. I bet you didn't think there would be a Warhammer reference in this episode, uh, but there is. That's how we're starting off. Like I said, these intros are just going to get weirder and weirder, so why not drop a little uh, little bit of Warhammer knowledge in there? Uh so this is this is probably going to be our first true minisode of Sci-Fi September. The the last episode went a little bit longer than I thought it would. Uh, no big deal. I just enjoy talking about uh, old radio plays, I guess. But this one we're gonna we're gonna get through a little bit quicker. Uh, this episode I'm calling um, this episode of Sci-Fi September is called Sci-Phylum. Um, yes, the taxonomy term phylum. Uh, you know to determine. Uh, uh, what kind of animals are in uh, are in a particular or in the animal kingdom? I guess. I listen. I'm not a biology expert, so there's uh, you can Google a much better definition than I just gave you. Uh, but it's a way to organize. It's a way to organize species in the animal kingdom. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if you were to do plants, if you were to do botany, um, I think the there isn't. I think they use the term division. So phylum is like kind of reserved just for animals. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so this episode. Since we've gotten kind of past the the uh, the early history of sci-fi, um, I think it's time to kind of get into modern sci-fi and how we do we really do um, make the effort to uh, put different stories into different categories. We have you know in within the sci-fi genre within the sci-fi phylum, um, we have subgenres of sci-fi that all kind of. You know, don't don't try not to think of these too much as being like hard and fast sort of categories, because a lot of these stories and things and things that we'll mention here kind of overlap. But there are very particular um, there are very particular ways to look at modern sci-fi, and by modern, I, I definitely mean more like the 1960s onward. Um, but we'll obviously talk about some things from uh, there's at least a few things from I believe there's a few things from prior 1960 that I have here, uh, but most everything will be coming from the 1960s onwards um, as we investigate these science fiction subgenres. So to start off, what are the subgenres of science fiction? I think there are a ton, and I think this is, I kind of get this way about, you can kind of get this way about music too, and it does kind of annoy me. Like you can get so granular with types of music that it's not even, we're not even talking genres, subgenres, or categories or anything anymore. Like, you know, it, it's you know with under the umbrella of electronic music or techno music you can get all the way down to styles of electronic music that are defined by the beats per second or beats per minute excuse me and like that's just so granular that like it will only leave you with like a you know a handful of songs in a particular category so some of these subgenres are just too small to really um to really make an episode about we'll, we'll mention a few of them and kind of um, and kind of some examples of works of fiction that, that cross over, but maybe aren't exactly uh, within the subgenre, but but do kind of share some characteristics and you know may, or some ways you could kind of think about uh, those those subgenres. But there are um, there are a few main ones. Uh, some of them are like very obvious. Um, some of them are very obvious and very familiar, but some of them are not maybe not as obvious or familiar, but they're still very. Um, they're still very prominent when you begin to break it down and look at some of the stories, um, be they book, movie, TV show, whatever, um, comics. 
that would fall under these particular categories. So there are, um, what am I looking? Oh gosh, I probably should have counted this before. There's sort of 12 main subgenres to science fiction. And uh, we'll go through these. I, I kind of organize them, and I organize them differently, but we'll. I'll, I'll explain all of that when we get to when we get to what we're going through. So, here are the the twelve main subgenres of science fiction. We have hard science fiction, space operas, cyberpunk, post apocalyptic, time travel, alternate history, biopunk, steampunk, military science fiction, social social science fiction, eco science fiction, and new weird. Um, so I'm going to give you breakdowns for all of those. However, I'm going to save, there's four that I'm saving for the next episode of Sci-Fi Island because I, they're, they're the most popular right now and, and the ones that really are kind of top of mind for, um, for creatives across, uh, entertainment medium. So, <clears throat> um, so I'm going to save those four and those four that I'm saving for the next episode are hard science fiction, cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic, and social science fiction. Uh, those are the those are kind of our big four um, our big four popular genres our big four of the moment uh, subgenres of science fiction right now. Um, but let's get into just real quickly here a few of the lesser known subgenres, um, some stuff that really you again the 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 stories that are there probably really aren't any stories that are explicitly just that that just line up within these subgenres. Um, there, but you will find sort of characteristics and things from other stories that maybe fit better into other, uh, subgenres. So I'm going to start off with two here that are kind of very, that are, I, I included them here. They're different characteristics, but I think the end result is kind of the same. So the first one here, or so, excuse me. So these first two here, solar punk and cyber prep. Now solar punk envisions a kind of an optimistic future, with the emphasis on like sustainable technology and green technology, right? Imagine like eco-friendly cities, renewable en energy. There's definitely a, a good sort of harmony between man and nature in solar punk. And cyber prep, um, you're going to have cyberpunk elements, but like more of a optimistic or utopian view of the future. Um, and we're going to talk about cyberpunk. Um, we're going to talk about cyberpunk in the next episode. But I'll get into a, a more def a better definition of it. But cyber prep. Again, think about like all of the stuff that kind of, all of the stuff that kind of defines cyberpunk in terms of like kind of dystopias and how technology is is really kind of creating class divisions. Um, in cyber prep, the technology is is not creating class divisions, but creating class harmony and social harmony. So you could think so that, you know you could kind of see why I kind of group these together. We're talking about a, an optimistic, sustainable future and. Um, technology kind of kind of bringing the classes together, right? So solarpunk and cyberprep are kind of two sides of the same coin. And again, hard to find very specific examples that that function only in these small subgenres. But Star Trek: The Next Generation has a lot of characteristics and ideals that would that you could kind of define as being solarpunk or even cyberprep. Uh, Lost in Space, the, especially the, the more recent uh, the recent uh, Netflix series Lost in Space has uh, some of these um, has some of these ideals. 
uh, and to kind of an interesting degree, uh, a movie that I watched recently that uh, I, I would call this a fun hidden gem if, if you're looking for something very different. Uh, Love and Monsters uh, has this has this sort of some of these ideas in which um, the especially in which man and nature kind of learn to live together after after a catastrophe. Um, so there you go. Star Trek, The Next Generation, Lost in Space and Love and Monsters all kind of can fit under this. Um, all have, I shouldn't say they fit under this category, but they share some ideas with the solar punk and cyber prep categories. Subgenres, excuse me. So the the next one we're going to get onto is the Solar System Opera. Um, this is focusing on epic adventures within our solar system. Right, we're not in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, we are, you know, talking about the Moon and Mars, and, and a lot. Mostly, we're usually talking about the Moon and Mars, and um, you know, some other there are, in some of these there are some other moons and things that have been uh, colonized, and that's really like kind of the the big thing: space colonization within our own uh, solar system. And, you know, what What are the challenges of living beyond Earth? And this is a little bit more straightforward here. I'm sure you can, uh, you know, think of a few right off the bat. And one of the big ones uh, more recently, both the book series and the excellent TV series, The Expanse, is a, you know, is a solar system opera. The Martian, um, the, the book and the, the movie with Matt Damon, that is a solar system opera. And uh, just to get back to one of our big three science fiction writers, uh, Heinlein, uh, the moon is a harsh, mit- harsh mistress, uh, depicting a sort of um, uh, the mo- marsh or lunar colonies. I believe they call themselves the loonies, um, kind of wanting their independence from Earth. In I think it's like the 2060s or the 2070s. So there you go, some solar system operas. There's obviously a few more that fit under this. As uh, you could, pr- you really, you could kind of put probably a lot of. Um, solar system exploration stories, at least somewhat under this. Uh, but certainly I think The Expanse, The Martian, and The Moon is a Harsh, mis- harsh Mistress are the more prominent examples of a solar system opera. Uh, there's also the Dying Earth subgenre. This is obviously, we, we see this quite a bit, right? Set in the far future where Earth is in, is in decline. Um, sometimes it's, you know, because of our own actions or sometimes it's because of something uh, you know, something else, um, you know, could be, uh, you know, uh, some kind of global catastrophe like an asteroid or, or a comet hitting or something, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, uh, you know, not to get too close to reality, but eh, it's been three years now, you know, some kind of horrible global pandemic, maybe whatever. Uh, but you could think of, um, you know, some more recent examples are Interstellar uh, is, is a dying earth, um, is a dying earth movie. Snowpiercer, um, the the movie and the TV show are dying earth um, are dying earth fiction, and uh, a show that uh, it's a show that is when when the mystery is allowed to be a mystery, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's two seasons. The first season's much better, um, and this is early work from uh, partially from the Duffer Brothers, who you probably know now from Stranger Things, but uh, they worked on a show called Wayward Pines uh, that set. Oh gosh, uh, several hundred years in the future, where uh, uh, society is rebuilding after some kind of biological um, or evolutionary disaster um, drastically changed human human life on Earth. So there you go, dying Earth stories. Pretty these ones are obviously a little bit more common, and they kind of fit into uh, a lot of these fit into multiple genres, right? Like all of these things I just mentioned: in- Interstellar, Snowpiercer, Wayward Pines. They all fit into multiple genres, but um, at, at their core, they are dying Earth stories. Uh, 
And then uh, time slip stories. These involve care, and this is, they're a little bit, I mean, they're obviously time travel stories, but in this case, think of them as involving characters experiencing time or some kind of time manipulation unintentionally, right? Like they're not, they're not dialing up a, a device to take them someplace. They're not in the DeLorean purposely going back to 1955 or forward to 1985 or back to the 1800s, right? These are things that are, stu- the, the, the action is happening to them whether they want it or not. Um, a lot of these stories focus on more of like kind of like personal and moral dilemmas, right? Because, because the action is kind of, it's something that's happening to the characters. They kind of have to figure out like what that means and how they're dealing with it. So some examples of some time slip, uh, some time slip stories, a uh, movie that we've talked about, uh, at, at nauseum. And actually I'll talk about uh, these guys a little bit more, but, uh, synchronic, uh, in which, you take a, a a particular drug accidentally causes time travel, which is kind of great. Um, Slaughterhouse Five, classic novel, uh, in which our protagonist is in is experiencing his own life out of out of sequence. Um, Edge of Tomorrow, a fantastic. It's also a military sci-fi movie, but a fantastic um, a fantastic time slip movie in which the uh, we kind of are accidentally harnessing the powers of our enemies. And how about one that you probably don't think about as being a sci-fi movie or a time travel movie or a time slip movie. You just think of it, think of it as being a comedy, but Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is a time slip, time travel, science fiction movie. Uh, so there you go. Synchronic, Slaughterhouse-Five, Edge of Tomorrow, and Groundhog Day are all time slip uh, stories and movies. Okay, so those are kind of the uh, the ones that are very much lesser known you could even debate if they kind of are even robust enough to be their own subgenre like for example you could kind of paint almost every apocalyptic movie tv show and story uh you know book comic as a dying earth story right like it's hard to it, some of these are just kind of hard to categorize and i just didn't say hard maybe categorizing categorizing them so granularly isn't really that important but I just thought it was kind of worth mentioning that there are, you know, how granular you can get with some of these subgenres. But let's move on to let's move back into that big list of like the twelve sort of um, the twelve sort of um, prominent subgenres that, by and large, most people would agree uh, they kind of understand at least somewhat. So I did kind of like I said I divided these up a little bit. Um, so I took the twelve and divided them into um, three different classes. Uh, the there's the big four sub, subgenres which are going to get their own episode because I think they're, they're their own minisode because I think they're worth diving into uh, individually and kind of exploring you know why these things are kind of popular right now. So like I said, there's the big the big four subgenres: hard science fiction, cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic, and social science fiction are your big four. And I'll give you let me give you those definitions uh, right now before we uh, before we get into it. So hard science fiction. Emphasizes the scientific accuracy, explores complex scientific concepts, you know, like in physics, biology, technology. Um, authors in this category, uh, and filmmakers, you could also put, you know, it's just the storytellers in this category, uh, strive to make their speculative ideas as plausible as possible within the context of current current under current scientific understanding. So, as we said, like hard science fiction, the the science. The science concepts are at the core of the fiction. Um, you know, so 
but you know what? I'm not going to get too far, much farther into that because again, we're going to go over these in a. We're going to go over these four in their own episode. Uh, Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is known for its gritty dystopian settings, advanced technology, and the focus on the consequences of uh, interactions and the fusion of humans and technology. Um, you can kind of think of this as sort of. Um, I, I think Chema actually had a really good way to put this when we were talking about a, a cyberpunk movie that we watched. Um, high-tech, low-life is a way to think of cyberpunk. That's what we're focusing on, how the how the technology has significantly advanced, but social, uh, social and class sort of uh, standing has slipped, has gone the opposite direction. So that those are like the hallmarks of cyberpunk. Uh, <clears throat> post-apocalyptic um, fiction here, science fiction. Explores worlds that have suffered catastrophic events like nuclear wars, pandemics, environmental disasters, and it delves into you know how the society copes or evolves or maybe even collapses in the aftermath of whatever the events uh, event or events are. Um, post-apocalyptic, pretty that's a pretty straightforward one there. And then social science fiction. Um, let me scroll down here. Social science fiction delves into the societal political issues uh, through you know through some kind of future, usually some kind of futuristic setting or. A lot of times some kind of uh, speculative uh, modern setting, I suppose. Um, real often, advan- uh, excuse me, it often uh, it explores how technology and cultural changes impact human behavior and institutions. And again, that's something that we will be going over specifically in its own episode. Uh, so that's your big four subgenres right now. Um, but let's dive into, so for this, I'm going to start kind of at the bottom, I guess. And I'm calling these the emergent subgenres. These are... A little bit newer or maybe they're not as uh well maybe you don't maybe they're not as well represented but they still have uh they still pack a pretty good punch in some of the stories and things that are uh that find themselves in the in this particular um this tier of the subgenres so these are the emergent subgenres and they are biopunk exoscience fiction eco-science fiction excuse me eco-science fiction new weird and steampunk now, biopunk, we have the definition for biopunk here, um, focuses on genetic engineering, biohacking, and like the ethical implications of manipulating um, biology, either human or animal biology. Pretty straightforward in that regard. Um, and some of the examples here, um, I have picked these because they all have some sort of different ethical dilemma at their core. Um, and I just picked three for each one of these here. And we'll go, we're not going to dive into the, into like full blown. Uh, you know, either movie, TV show, or story description, but I'll just kind of give you the why behind it. Um, so our first kind of bio, our first biopunk example, uh, the 1997 movie, and I think uh, an underrated sort of um, cult classic, Gattaca. Um, in this movie, the the biopunk of it all, enhancing people has led to the development of two very different societies. Um, it's very characteristic. It's very... It's very succinctly set up, I should say, um, with two characters. I don't, I don't know how deep I want to get into the spoilers and, and details of this, but two characters are revealed to actually be brothers. One of them is one of the uh, genetically enhanced and modified people. One of them uh, was conceived the natural way, and um, the 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 enhanced brother is shocked at how the non-enhanced brother has managed to. Um, sort of exist in his part of the world, in his society, part of the society, um, so long undetected. Uh, he's actually even surprised that he's alive. 
basically. Um, so in Gattaca, we have two very distinct societies that have developed because of the way that we, because of the, of the biopunk of it all. Blade Runner, uh, both the original and uh, 2049, we are getting into the ethics of artificial life forms. Um, you know, it's uh, not aliens, but it does obviously these movies don't involve aliens, but I, I think you could, I think in other movies that do involve aliens kind of could get into some of this territory about artificial or extraterrestrial life forms. Uh, but in this case, Blade Runner, even though like the, the biopunk isn't really, we're not talking about hacking necessarily. We have created artificial life forms. And what does that mean for us now? Are they, are they people? Are they something else? Can we subjugate them into into labor? Can we not? Um, what happens when they start to give birth themselves? Uh, there's a lot of moral and ethical quandaries uh, tied into both of the Blade Runner movies in terms of artificial life forms. Uh, how about The Island? Uh, not a terribly great movie, but it does get into the ethics of cloning and also how drastically different healthcare is for the rich, right? Um, you know, even though... I mean, who knows Who knows when and if um, we'll ever be able to clone ourselves and thus harvest our own organs. But surely if that other, ever does become reality, more than likely the rich will be the ones that have access to it. And uh, the rest of us poor schlubs will uh, just have to die, I guess. So that's biopunk. Um, that's this sub, this, so Gattaca, Blade Runner, The Island. A couple of very good examples of what you could think about when you think of biopunk. Uh, when you think of exoscience fiction, um, so um, <clears throat> let me get it. To, let me find the, the definition, the exact definition for exoscience fiction. Pretty straightforward. Focuses on environmental issues, climate change, and ecological themes, and how you know those are kind of are, are going to stretch, and like what the aftermath for some of these will be. Um, and I picked these uh, these three uh, stories here because they're representatives of different stages of ecological disaster, right? So my first one up here is Moonhaven, a TV show that was very strange, but I think kind of worth a watch. Kind of disappointed. Very disappointed it didn't get a second season uh, because it was going someplace really interesting by the end. Uh, but Moon Moonhaven, um, the climate disaster has already happened. Like, Earth is already in dire straits, and now we're, we're on the moon with some advanced artificial intelligence kind of creating... We're rethinking how human beings have to live in general. And we're going to send people from the moon back to Earth to sort of try to try to teach um, everyone on Earth how how we can live, um, how we can live and kind of fix ourselves, um, you know, fix the climate, fix, fix the collapsed society, how we can fix it all. That's Moonhaven. Uh, the day after tomorrow, it's happening right now. And we have to survive it. That's all. Um, the, ecolog the ecological disaster has, has come to an inflection point, and now we just have to survive it. And uh, both of these movies, Avatar, both uh, Avatar and Avatar The Way of Water, um, obviously this isn't a, Earth has already pretty much uh, gone to shit at this point, but um, on Pandora, we are trying to keep nature's perfect balance safe from outside threats. The outside threats, of course, being humans. Um, but so you have uh, so for, for these three here, you have the very different stages of uh, of eco science fiction. Now, new weird. This is one of this is one of my I think this is my favorite emergent subgenre. Uh, but new weird is defined by um, blending elements of science fiction, fantasy, horror, 
just to create a very surreal world with very kind of unconventional storytelling methods. So the, I think this is my favorite of the emergent genre subgenres, and I picked these three here because they all kind of they all have their own sort of blend or genre-defying sort of um, characteristics, right? So I'm going to start off here with a pretty one of my favorites, pretty big one here, Annihilation, both the both the book series and the uh, and the movie. This is diamond hard sci-fi. Um, something that we'll talk about uh, in the next episode, but uh, imagine sci- imagine hard sci-fi even harder. Um, this is diamond hard sci-fi combined with psychological horror, combined with body horror, combined with believe it or not, eco science fiction. Um, you know, you could you probably could pick up on a, on a few more things. There's obviously like this sort of uh, family drama unfolding with um, in the movie at least with. Um, uh oscar isaac and um natalie portman's characters right like there's they're getting into stuff about their marriage even though they might not even though they might not even be themselves there's still sort of this um this weird family dynamic at play um so that's annihilation uh i put them i just put it i just put the two directors here together again people that we've talked about ad nauseum here that that uh we really like around the occasionalists uh this is all of all of all of moorhead and benson's movies are new weird they are indie dramas. They're also cosmic horrors, um, you know, eldritch, eldritch horror, and uh, they cover supernatural and scientific phenomena all at the same time. Um, it's it's one of the most unique blends of of one of the most unique blends of science fiction and horror storytelling around are movies like Resolution or Spring or The Endless, even their most recent effort. Um, uh, something in the dirt is, uh, you know, really falls under the, is very, very hard to kind of singularly define. Um, you know, is it, is it, it's a meta, that movie is a meta movie, a, a rumination on cults and secret societies, and also on, um, the unreliable narrator. It's just a fantastic blend of stuff. So I just put all of Moorhead and Benson, uh, in, in one grouping here. And then, uh, Under the Skin existential dread gender obje- uh, objectification body horror so, you know and then more some more uh, classic sci-fi tropes like uh you know aliens coming to do experiments on people um just such a a, a all of these movies well all, all of them i guess i guess in totality with morehead and benson there's like six or seven movies here that we're kind of name checking but annihilation morehead and benson under the skin all of these with these interesting mixes of different genres to create in all in their own way, these very signature and unique sort of um, visions um, that really are unlike anything else. So that's new weird. And then I, I guess this is probably the most emergent and the most visible of the genres. Literally, um, talking about steampunk here, pretty much because I think it it mostly exists. Um, it mostly exists as sort of a cosplay aesthetic. More so than, and obviously there's plenty of steampunk books and um, some TV shows and stuff. Um, but I think it mostly it more exists as this very well known and um, well it, like even people who aren't into sci-fi stuff probably know what steampunk is. Um, <clears throat> and oh, let me get you the, your in case you don't let me get you the definition. Steampunk is characterized by a blend of Victorian era aesthetics. An advanced steam-powered technology, often set in alternate historical settings. Um, so, 
one of one of the examples here is a show that was went wildly towards one end of the sci-fi spectrum to the other um but the nevers uh, was on hbo and it literally takes place in an alternate victorian victorian era england um so we are actually going back to the to the very point in time where a lot of the the steampunk where the steampunk aesthetic kind of comes from we're actually going back to that point in time for this uh for this particular tv show that uh was not given a second season uh due to uh josh whedon's involvement and then uh i don't know if you guys remember this but a few years ago there was a pandemic as well uh that kind of halted production uh on this particular show and probably killed it um i'm kidding of course if you definitely know that uh wild wild west uh the movie and i actually never saw the original tv show so i can't make a comment on that but the uh the movie what would 1880s advanced super tech look like right uh we have that giant spider that is uh you know the giant spider that uh loveless um pilots around some of the other tech to you know, just that whole thing uh is the whole thing is the american version of, of steampunk so wild wild west and then more recently a video game from uh i think about a decade ago now bioshock infinite this is early 20th techno early 20th century technology on steroids we're talking airships we're talking um uh we're talking uh you know like uh <clears throat> I, I guess uh early early um early cable car systems we're talking uh early recording devices gramophones things like that that kind of early 20th early 20th century technology all hyped up on steroids for the bioshock for this particular entry in the Bioshock universe, which uh, they all they all take place uh, kind of in a dip more classic areas, classic time periods of sci-fi. Um, the the original games take place uh, in a place called Rapture, and it's like the night it's like an alternate 1960s uh, underwater. And uh, Bioshock Infinite, alternate 19, I believe it's like 1912, in a floating city, um, you know, floating airship city. Uh, so there you go. There's your steampunk sub genre. The Nevers, Wild Wild West, and Bioshock Infinite. Now, this next section I'm calling the classic subgenres. Uh, these classic subgenres are ones you've definitely heard about and have some familiarity with. So, these ones are space operas, time travel, alternate history, and military science fiction. Uh, for space operas, real quick, I'll give you the definitions per usual. Um, space operas focus on epic adventures set in space often featuring interstellar travel, um, interstellar political conflicts, and usually there's always got to be some kind of big space battle, right? That's always happening in a space opera. And I picked these because I, I feel like they represent different parts of the most... I think space opera is probably one of, if not the most popular uh, sci-fi genres, right? And in big part, it's because of the first one, Star Wars. Um, and Star Wars, I, I, I picked this because aspects of the adventure the adventure and western serials of the 1930s is really kind of one of the things that informs a lot of the a lot of the storytelling and even some of the aesthetic of star wars kind of comes from stuff like buck rogers in the 25th century but also from like bonanza and some of these other <laughs> some of these other serials um from that from that time um our next one here dune the probably the most overtly political and social um you know realistically speaking everything in dune is dune is multi <laughs> dune is multi-genre in terms of sci-fi you could put it into a lot of 
different particular genres because this Dune is such an important and seminal uh, work in the in the, uh, in the sci-fi genre. But I, putting it here, I think, kind of gives it the it, it, I think the two most important things, it, it being very political and it being very social, um, are what kind of really help classify it as a space opera. Plus, as I, I know I mentioned this before in previous episodes, without Dune, there is no Star Wars. Like, no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, it again, like you could look at stuff like Spice as being this, you could look at Spice as oil, right? Like it is the literally, literally the fuel that um, powers this um this interstellar um you know trading uh, trading compendium whatever the hell they're called um this empire is literally fueled by spice but also um spice is also something that people ingest and it's also a drug right um and in some cases it completely transforms the users the um the uh oh gosh i can't remember what they're called now but the uh, the guild navigators uh in dune have been phys- they're still humans, but they've been physically transformed um, by spice. And you could you could think of you could think of it as being drug addicts, right? Um, so there are social and political messages that run throughout Dune, um, and I think that's why it's best to put it in space opera. Um, Foundation, both the book and the series that just uh, wrapped up its second season, it is fantastic. Um, reimagining these sort of classical empires, reimagining the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire. Um, you know, Byzantium, um, you know, um, Alexander's, Alexander's, Alexander the Great's uh, conquests. That sort of is very of mind when it comes to foundation, right? But this like classical empire is, you know, literally 30, 40, 50,000 years into the future. Um, but we're still kind of seeing some of the echoes of this sort of of the sort of classical empire storytelling, the palace intrigue, the political uh, the political fallout, um, the you know, political fallout of 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 certain planetary or in this you know in ancient times um, empire alliances, country alliances, but in in these in these distant future storytellings, planetary alliances in you know intergalactic war. Um, so I think you know between these three, Star Wars, Dune, Foundation, we have nice pieces of that whole definition kind of in different in different forms here. Uh, time travel, our next classic subgenre, um, and this one should be pretty obvious here. But again, I'll, I'll read a little uh, a little blurb here. Stories in this subgenre involve the manipulation of time, often leading to paradoxes, and we also very often have very complex narrative structures, which I think is one of the big keys here. Um, so I and I picked these three here because we also have three distinct versions of time travel as well. So our first one here, primer. Um, which definitely has a, an extraordinarily complex uh, narrative structure, so much so that um, despite it being an 88-minute movie, you there is no way you can take all of this in in one sitting. Um, but Primer, I would call it origin point in time travel, right? Like they create the box and our, um, our protagonist, or I guess our protagonist and antagonist, they can only travel to the point at which the time, the time machine was created. So that's our origin point. They can move through time forward and or they can move, you know, they can go back to that point in time to retry things, do things over and over again, but they can't travel before the creation of, a, of the time machine. Um, so I call that origin point time travel. Tenet, um, one of the one of the most interesting, again, a movie that kind of got spiked because of uh, because of the again, I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple years ago, there was this pandemic thing that happened. 
Um, a movie that got spiked because of the pandemic. Uh, Tenet. And is this is what as this is straight from Christopher Nolan's mouth, a time inversion uh, in which certain objects and certain people in this case are moving in moving in the opposite direction of time. It's uh, a little bit. I shouldn't say it's not convoluted. It's complicated. Again, a complicated narrative structure because uh, we have characters that literally know each other from different points in time, um, but it's not exactly time travel. Someone is just moving at a different speed. That's all. Or move, moving at a different direction of time. Um, it's confusing, but I love that movie very, very much. And uh, finally, Arrival. And because this isn't really exactly time travel, um, this is because through the heptapod language that our... Um, I cannot remember Amy Adams' character's name at this point in time, but uh, our protagonist... Um, once she begins learning and understanding the heptapod language, she can perceive time holistically, right? Like she's not actually traveling through time, but she can use that language to see everything that's happened. Everything she can, I guess she can now has a non-linear view of time. So I call this sort of um, holistic time perception, right? She can see the whole of time by understanding this language. And she uses it to kind of uh, avert disaster, avert uh, intergalactic disaster uh, with the heptapod aliens. So that's Primer, Tenet, and Arrival for our time travel movies, our time travel stories. Um, Alternate history. This is, again, a a pretty obvious one here. Uh, Explores basically what, you know, what ifs. You know, what if historical events had unfolded um, differently due to, um, you know, due to whatever change that we're kind of um, thinking about here. And I, I picked these because the changes, even though even though they seem bombastic, the changes are smaller than you think. And it really illustrates like just the thin razor, uh, razor's edge that our reality is actually sitting on. So the first one here, <clears throat> classic one, maybe, maybe, one, maybe the most classic example, uh, both book and TV show, The Man in the High Castle. Um, and basic, basically it just posits, what if the Nazis built the atomic bomb first, right? Like they would 100% use it against us, use it against any of their enemies as we did. Um, and this is probably also, you know, something to think about in the wake of Oppenheimer's success. Um, but what would have happened if the Nazis had built the atomic bomb first, um, you know, and, and obviously swung the war in their direction? And, you know, what would society look like? Um, what, would what would post-World War II uh, American society look like if um, if the Nazis won and divvied the country up between uh, between them and Japan, for all mankind, TV series um, that posits what if the Cold War never ended and the focus of the Cold War became the space race, and how um, you know the space race continues all the way to now, um, basically, and some of the some of the ramifications, you know, a, a permanent moon base. Um, you know, uh, technologies and things that, you know, are, are technologies and things that are surpassing in some areas, but maybe wouldn't have been created in, in other areas. Um, so there's for all mankind. Um, Watchmen. Well, this one is probably the most bombastic, but, you know, masked vigilantes were a part of everyday life in the 1930s. And that kind of branches out to have these more political and civil rights implications as the story advances. And I'm talking about both graphic novel, movie, and more recently TV TV series, right? Um, talking about uh, the Keen Act and talking about how um, uh, Ozymandias uh, kind of manipulates 
you know manipulates things to keep a very a very tentative peace uh, worldwide peace right and it's all because the presence of masked vigilantes um in the first place kind of changes changes reality um in the 1930s and 40s and you know thus creates a very different um creates a very different uh, modern society and that that modern society would have been the 1980s and then obviously the tv more recent tv series um in modern times so there you go our alternate history stories the man in the high castle for all mankind and watchmen and then finally here we're going to wrap up with military science fiction and uh again this is pretty straightforward um subgenre revolves around military conflicts often in space or some of their futuristic settings and there is an exploration of tactics technology and very importantly the human experience of war and I, I, I picked these because the aspects of military service are very much at the center of all these stories. Um, so Starship Troopers, both the book and the movie, um, really, you know, in, in the book, we're talking about unquestioned service to the state and how a more hardline right fascist, right wing fascist rule is kind of necessary for the, you know, for the survival of the state in the face of this particular enemy. But in the movie Starship Troopers, we are sat- we are satirizing what unquestioned service to the state means. We are we are satirizing what fascist rule in a society would look like. So Starship Troopers kind of hits it from the book and the movie both hit it from both ends. Uh, the Forever War, great book, um, and this is very. Uh, I want to say it's late seventies, and it really is commenting on mostly the Vietnam War, but. Um, the Forever War involves time dilation, um, you know, as a as it follows a soldier who's traveling to a distant distant star to fight a battle, and because of the because of the how long because we're t- because we are traveling faster than light, time for time dilation means time is getting kind of screwbally for the people um, involved in the time travel, but obviously the people outside of it. You know, a month passes for him traveling to his destination, a century passes on Earth. And in the Forever War, you know, he's essentially fighting this war for centuries. Um, And every time he comes back to Earth or comes back to um, civilization, he's further and further disconnected from society. Like the the Earth he's fighting for doesn't even like barely remembers the war in the first place. And, you know, this is very allegory, you know, very um, um, analogous for, like I said, for Vietnam, but analogous for how soldiers in general are increasingly disconnected from society when they go to war. Um, that they are no longer living in... They, they are living in a different reality and they're no longer living in real society anymore. And how that like how that affects them. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, the TV series. Uh, mostly the second one. But there's a lot of philosophical questions in this. Um, some are explored deeper than others and better than others. But, however, Battlestar Galactica, you can really look at this at how a collapsing society or I guess a collapsed society, balances authoritarian rule with civilian rule and civil rights. Um, there's, again, it's not it's not the main focus, but many times in the episodes, we, we do have these sort of um, kind of standoffs between, um, you know, the president of the colonies and the, uh, the general, the, you know, the only re- remaining general or admiral, I guess, of, um, you know, of the... Uh, of, of the fleet, you know, and how, how, you know, we can't, 
if one or the other takes over, especially if the authoritarian military military rule takes over, you know, we can't the society can't flourish. Right. So there has to be a balance on it. And we have to figure out how we balance the military with the civilians in Battlestar Galactica. So there you go. Your military science fiction, Starship Troopers, both book and movie, the Forever War book and Battlestar Galactica, the TV show. All right, so that does it for this episode. Um, This, again, went a little bit longer than I thought, but no big deal. But like I said, we will get into the big four next in the next episode. And those big four that we're going to be talking about next time, hard sci-fi, cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic, and social science fiction. We'll get into, obviously, the the specific definitions, some examples, and also we're going to get into why I think those things are, those subgenres are really popping right now. I'll get into why I think that is. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Later.